Well, good morning. Welcome to this Friday morning gathering of Redeemer Church of Dubai. My name is Dave Furman. I serve as one of the pastors here with the church. The church is not a place, but a people. We've been saying that a lot, but we sure are glad that we have a place to meet every Friday, wherever it may be. We'll be here, obviously, this morning and for the next two weeks. 1 Samuel chapter 21. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, It's in your bulletin beginning on page 5. We're going to look at three chapters. It's all printed there. Three chapters and then take communion together. That's a tall order for one morning. So we have a lot of work to do ahead of us. You'll want to follow along. Again, if you don't have a Bible in the bulletins, because we're going to be running through these three chapters, and I want you to know where we're at in the passage. Well, as I think about our text, I can't help but think about the words we sang earlier in the service from the song, Jesus Strong and Kind. I've been listening to that song over and over the past couple weeks, much of the time, even in tears. I love the reminder that Jesus is both strong and kind. It's a beautiful picture of our Savior, one who is strong and yet one who is kind. This is what we're going to see in our chapters today. And our main point in the words of that song is this, the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. The Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. Even when it looks like evil is winning, when it looks like the day will never come, God will keep us safe in the chase. This is what we see in God's protection of David this morning. Chapter 21, verse 1. We have David coming up to Ahimelech, the priest. The priest doesn't seem very excited to see David. He's trembling, probably because he's heard of Saul's pursuit of David. He's nervous about having David around. He sees something's not right. Why is David alone? Why doesn't he even have a weapon with him? And David comes up with a rather weak story. Verse 2. The king has charged me with the matter and said to me, let no one know anything about the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. David says, I'm on a private mission. I can't even tell you what's going on. Obviously, Saul has said no such thing to David. Again, remember the Bible doesn't recommend what it reports always. It doesn't give us a commentary on everything. Why does David lie? We don't know. A few possibilities. One is that Ahimelech is the brother of Ahijah. And since Ahijah had joined Saul as his spiritual advisor, maybe David doesn't fully trust Ahimelech. Another possibility is that David is trying to protect Ahimelech. He's trying to protect him from aiding the king's enemy. Or he's just lying because he's afraid. The point isn't necessarily what David does in these verses, but what God does. Now look at what God does. David here has nothing. Verse 3, he's hungry. He asks for some bread. Each week the priests would bake fresh bread, and they would put the bread on the table of showbread. It was a picture of to them and to the people of God's great provision. Only the priests could eat this holy bread. Ahimelech says, 
uh, David, that's all the bread that we have. See, this wasn't the kind of bread you would just take out from the table and eat for dinner with your butter chicken. No, it was a holy bread. It's why we don't pass out uh, communion bread to little kids who just want an extra snack for the morning. But if someone came in from the streets poor and starving, we had no food, we had no money, we had no way of feeding them, well, we could serve them. It's a different kind of situation. The eating of the bread doesn't supersede the law. It's not that this eating of the bread and the law are at odds with one another, but the eating of the bread here is really at the very heart of the law. The intent of God's law in the scripture is mercy and grace. That's the intent. That's the heart behind it. Here, the priest, learning that the men had kept themselves holy, gives the bread as an act of compassion uh, to David. But while all this was taking place, we notice in our passage there's a bad guy lurking in the background. Verse 7, a servant of Saul. Doeg is his name. How many of you have a kid named Doeg? Just raise your hand. I want to see them up high. Don't be ashamed. Any, any Doegs out there? It's not a very popular name, is it? No one names their kid Doeg. We don't even name our dogs Doeg. Doeg is a bad guy. Right now, he's just kind of lurking in the background, but we'll come back to him in a few minutes. God feeds David, also gives him a sword. Verse 8, Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. Another lie, but we're not keeping track, are we? Verse 9, David, uh, so the only sword that we have here is actually Goliath's. It's the one, you might remember, that David took from Goliath and then cut off Goliath's head with it. We don't know how it got here, to the priest, maybe it was a trophy of God's deliverance. Well, it's ironic that the sword, which was once God's enemy, would later be a trophy of victory and now would be used to deliver God's people. Well, God's ways are not our ways. A victory often comes through apparent defeat. When Goliath came out with the sword, it looked like it was all over. Remember back to that fight. It looked like evil would win. God's people would lose. Certain defeat was right before their very eyes, but instead, that sword of defeat became a symbol of victory. It reminds us of the cross of Christ. Jesus there on the cross was suffering a humiliating death by the most heinous weapon of execution known to man. It looked like certain victory for Satan. It looked like Christ's life was over. Everyone thought so. But all along, that place of execution, God was bringing about victory. That's why some of us wear crosses around our necks. If you thought about that, the cross is not a nice thing. It, it, it was an instrument of execution for the worst criminals. It was a horrible thing. And yet for us as a Christian... What was used for evil has become our symbol of victory. It's a reminder that the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day 
and night. Even when it looks like all is lost, God is at work. David gets food. David gets a weapon, and he heads off. Where does he go? Verse 10. Where? Where? To Gath. Now, where was Goliath from? Gath. Goliath of Gath. What on earth is David doing here? He's going to the enemy with the enemy's sword. Now, I'm not a rocket scientist, but this is possibly the worst idea ever. Now, why is Saul going there? I should say, why is David evading Saul and going there? He must have been desperate. Maybe he knew Saul was on the chase. Maybe he thought, okay, um, hmm, maybe I should go to the enemy. Maybe Saul won't look for me there. We don't know. But this is crazy. Does he think he can be incognito in Gath? Does he think he can go out for a cheeseburger in Gath and not be recognized? I wouldn't be surprised if there were wanted posters plastered all over the windows of stores and restaurants throughout Gath. He's the guy who killed Goliath. And this was a big deal. But remember, he also delivered a couple hundred Philistine foreskins to Saul. That means he left widows. He left family members without their loved ones. David is not a popular guy in Gath. Verse 11, they recognize David, all right. Probably doesn't take long. They've heard the Billboard Top 100 hit song about David. And the servants of Ashish said to him, is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Hey guys, uh, David, you, you won't believe this, David is in town. He's here. Verse 12, all this attention freaks David out. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Ashish, the king of Gath. Let me just translate this for you. Here's what David is thinking. Oops. Where have I gone? What have I done? I mean, did he really think this was a good idea? Verse 13, he's scared. This is the first time here in the scriptures we see that David is scared. He's afraid, which again is ironic. He defeated Goliath, cut off his head with the sword, and he's got that sword. He has a reminder that he can look at all the time, a reminder of God's faithfulness and God's strength. But even David, even David wasn't immune to fear. No, none of us are immune to moments of doubt or struggle well, David's in trouble. He comes up with a plan to get out of trouble. Look there, he changed his behavior. He changed his behavior before them. He pretended to be insane in their hands, made marks on the doors of the gate, and let his spittle run down his beard. Now, in their hands, that likely implies he was imprisoned. They imprisoned David, or at least incarcerated him somehow. But David starts slobbering like a dog. Acting like a crazy man. David's drooling. Everywhere drool spit all over his beard. I mean, it was gross. They could literally see the writing on the wall. Illegible graffiti. In the ancient Near East, they would sometimes leave crazy people alone. It was thought that insane people were afflicted by the gods. You would just kind of cast them aside. That's what they seem to do here. But not before Asha says something kind of funny. Verse 14, then Asha said to his servants, 
Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack mad men that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And what are you doing, guys? Does it look like I want another madman around here? Don't I have enough crazy people? Look around. Now, this makes me laugh. He's saying, men, look in the mirror. You guys are crazy enough. Why bring me anyone else? Get him out of here. In God's grace, David is delivered again. David's been foolish. At times, David's been fearful, but God keeps him. Isn't this encouraging to us? David's far from perfect. Now in chapter 22, he ends up in a cave. Dave in a cave. We'll see in a minute, Saul's under a tree. Dave's in a cave. David's on the run. Saul's on the prowl. David seems to have nothing. Saul has a kingdom. David has a few men. Saul has an army. It looks again like evil is winning. The good guys are going to lose. But even when it looks like all is lost, God is at work. The Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. The word gets out. Word gets out that David's in a cave. His brother's all his father's house join him, his family. And in verse 2 of chapter 22, this is interesting. I never th- would have thought that a cave would have been the place to be. But look at this. Everyone in distress, those in doubt, everyone bitter in soul, they all gather to David. He becomes their commander. All the misfits, all the sufferers, all those in pain, all those struggling, they all come to David. 400 men were with him. Why? They're likely afraid of Saul. They recognize in some way David as the anointed one. There's something special about David. And they flock to him. Reminds me as we read the Gospels of how the hurting, the misfits, the persecuted, those suffering flocked to Jesus. They all came around and hovered around Jesus. Well, friend, I don't know what brought you here today. Maybe you normally come. Maybe you're new to our church. You may feel hopeless like this group of people here in 1 Samuel. In these moments, where do you run? In times of trouble, where do you go? Well, David would eventually walk out of the cave. But there's another man, the God-man, who walked out of a cave. In fact, he burst out of a cave and resurrected from the dead. Jesus rose victorious for the hurting, for the sinful, for those who doubt, for those who struggle with fear. If you're hurting, oh friend, go to him. If you're weary, if you're heavy laden today, go to Jesus. His death on the cross is the ultimate hospitality. All are welcome to come to him for salvation. You don't have to schedule an appointment with him. You don't have to do anything. There's nothing you can do to earn God's favor. All you have to do is accept his invitation. Go to him in faith, trusting in him to be your Lord and Savior. Have you done that before? If you've not yet done that, I want you to be thinking about that today. Before you leave those doors, have you turned to Jesus in repentance of your sins of independence and sin of trying to live life your own way, sin of trying to get rid of your sin on your own, and have you trusted in him to save you?
It's the most important decision you can make. Well, here in our passage, David can only stay in the cave for so long. He has to take a quick visit to the king of Moab. Verse 3, please let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. So he leaves his parents there. He's, he's thinking about them. Perhaps the chase was too much for them in their late years. I suppose David actually expects the king of Moab to help him or else he wouldn't have asked the king to help. King may have thought he would do it, maybe because of their family connections. Do you remember who David's great-grandmother was? It was Ruth. <clears throat> Ruth the Moabitess. Perhaps some years before, God was working all these things together to care for David's parents. Well, friends, there are no accidents. God is always in control. God is always doing a million things behind the scenes that we can't see in the moment. We'll never see everything this side of glory, but we know that God is at work even in the small details of our lives. Here God's providing for David's parents. David departs again at the command of the prophet Gad. God is divinely directing David. Verse 6, Saul gets word. Remember, Saul has spies all around, everyone looking out for David. Saul hears David's been discovered, and Saul's sitting there under a tree with his spear in his hand. He's got his servants standing all around him. I mean, talk about a madman. This guy looks like a psychopath sitting there under the tree with his spear. Verse 6, he hears David's been discovered. He's not happy. Here now, people of Benjamin... Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse? None of you is sorry for me? Or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day? Oh man, why have you betrayed me? Is David going to give you vineyards? Is David going to give you the perks of the kingdom? Is it worth turning on me, the king? Well, Saul's manipulative. He's trying to bribe them. He's a terrible leader, self-absorbed. Verse 8, none of you is sorry for me? He actually says that. Are none of you good for nothing men sorry for what you've done to me? I mean, this is bizarre. You're the king of Israel, yeah, sure. Yeah, king, we feel sorry for you. And when you see a leader like this, you run as fast as you can in the other direction. These men around him have stood up for what's right. It must not have been easy. The king made promises to them. In the same way, the world makes promises to us today. If you do this, if you do that, then you'll be happy. You can have it all. Don't follow God's ways. Follow the world. And you can have everything you've ever dreamed of. Saul says, why would you give up the world? Why would you give up this kingdom for a future kingdom? Why would you give up the world for a future king? Redeemer Church, this is the Christian life. We're to stand up in the face of the world and say no. No, we're not going to live for the glories of this world. No, all that glitters is not gold. And we're going to live for a future hope. But there's one man here who doesn't stand up against Saul and looks to the world. Who is it? 
It's Doeg. Good old Doeg is back. Speaks up. Saul, I'll take some of that stuff. I'll, I'll, take, I'll take the perks of the kingdom. I'll take some glory. I'll take a vineyard or three. Here's what's been happening with David. Verse 9. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. He inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions, gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Saul, Ahimelech is your guy. He helped David. Well, Saul, the king summons Ahimelech. He summons his family, all the priests. When the king asks for you, you go. When they arrive, Saul won't even say his name. Verse 12, hear now, son of Ahitub. Why have you done this? Why did you feed my enemy and give him a sword? And you prayed for him? Are you serious? Why did you do that? Well, I love Ahimelech's response. Verse 14, then Ahimelech answered the king, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. This is a bold brother right here. Ahimelech is a hero. Saul, let me tell you something. None of your servants are as faithful as David. And by the way, you got to know something. This isn't the first time I prayed for David. <laughs> I've prayed for him a lot of times. I love this boldness. Saul's furious. He calls for a massacre, but the guards won't do it. They stand up against the evil king. Sometimes you have to stand up against wicked governments. When earthly rulers come into conflict with our heavenly king, we stand up for our heavenly king. When earthly rulers come into conflict with God, we stand up for God. These, these servants won't, won't do it. So in verse 18, Saul goes to his man Doeg. Hey, buddy, you do it. And he does. Kills 85 priests. Kills their families, kills kids, infants, animals. There will be times when God's people suffer. This is the opposite of the prosperity gospel, isn't it? If you read through the whole Bible, but in our section here in Old Testament narrative, if you read through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, you will see that at times God's people will suffer. Sometimes God's people will suffer when doing what's right. The way of the Christian is the way of the cross. Now, all the priests killed. One escapes, verse 20. One son of Ahimelech named Abiathar. God is going to preserve and save his people through this one priest, this one man. Again, reminds us of Jesus. God's people may have been destroyed, but not completely destroyed. As one author has said, we're not promised we won't die for the kingdom. But it does mean that God's kingdom won't die. Well, God's kingdom is forever. David gets word from Abiathar. He says, oh no. Ah. 
I knew that Doeg was a bad guy. I knew it. I should have taken care of him when I had the chance. And then a sad confession. I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Whether it was David's fear, whether he's thinking about his poor decisions, maybe he's looking back to just not formally stopping Doeg. Either way, he fears at fault. These are the scars of sin or the scars of poor decisions, these scars that David's going to have to live with. But what we'll see here until the end of chapter 23 is that in spite of our weakness, in spite of our sin, and in spite of the strength of our enemies, God protects his people. The Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. Verse 23, David understands that God is with him. He says to Abiathar, stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. And in chapter 23, David gets word that the Philistines are fighting against Keilah. David understands that God is with him, but more trouble is to come. Keilah, it was about three kilometers south of Adullam, the cave where David was earlier. David inquires of the Lord. Shall I go and attack the Philistines? The Lord says, go. But David's men tell him they're already afraid where they're, where they're at. So imagine how scared we're going to be if we go against the Philistines. So David prays again. The Lord says, you go. Don't worry. I've given the Philistines to you. Tell the men not to worry. Now for a man who's been terrified in chapters 21 and 22, David time and time again consults the Lord here in chapter 23. You could just take time later on or even as we're going to just either underline or just point out all the places there in the chapter that David consults the Lord. For a man who is terrified, for a man who we don't see consult the Lord in these earlier chapters, here's a man who seems to have a bit of a spiritual revival in his heart. He's a man on the run, but here he's a man who prays every step of the way, who asks God for guidance. And the right response to our fears is to pray and to trust the Lord. David's men, they go fight. They win, as the Lord said they would. They bring back livestock. Saul hears of it in verse 8, summons his men to fight, all of them. Verse 9, David asks for the ephod. This is the priestly garment with the Urim and Thummim. It was like lots. It was an acceptable way in those days to ask God for guidance. David again prays, verse 10. O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. The Lord tells David, yes, Saul will come. And David prays yet again. Will the men of Keilah turn us into Saul? The Lord says, yes, they will. So David gets his men, 600 of them, and they take off. When Saul hears they've escaped, he gives up the expedition, at least for the day. He has no idea where Saul has gone. But it doesn't stop him from trying. The end of verse 14, Saul sought David every day. Every day. He was consumed with getting David, and yet God wouldn't give David over to him. Saul thought he was in charge, but who was in charge? Well, Yahweh. Who's in control over the army? Saul thought he was in charge of the armies, but God is the boss. David's being hunted for his life, which is terrifying. But who's in the scarier place here? 
David's being pursued by Saul, but Saul is going up against the sovereign God of the universe. This is the worst place to be. God is with David, answering his prayers, giving him guidance, and giving him a friend. You notice Jonathan comes back here. They meet up again. Jonathan encourages him, don't give up, David. Don't give up. God is going to win. Verse 17, one day you will be king, and I will be right there next to you. Well, this is friendship. A true friend reminds you of God's promises. When times are difficult, a true friend gives you perspective. Jonathan was helping David persevere in the faith. We don't know at this point just how close David was to giving up. I I mean, over and over and over again, he's running away from Saul and just barely evading Saul. We don't know how discouraged he is at this very juncture. But Jonathan wouldn't let him go there. Jonathan wouldn't let him give up. The two make another covenant of some kind together, some kind of promise. David remains there. Jonathan goes back home. And word gets to Saul again that David is hiding in Horesh. This is the desert. And the Ziphites give some very specific directions. They give him the Google Maps list of where to go. He's in the strongholds of Horesh, on the hill of Hachalah, south of Jeshimon. And very specific instructions. Go left, go right, go straight. Now, why did the Ziphites betray him? Well, Remember what happened to the priests at Nob. Remember how cutthroat Saul is. Saul is a murderous king. Everyone's afraid of Saul, so you had a choice. Either die at the hands of Saul or get a vineyard from the hands of Saul. Now, to gain the world, you have to sell your soul. And the Ziphites, they let Saul know what was happening. Saul blesses them and asks them to be totally sure exactly where David is. See, David's evaded him so many times. And so Saul says, you know what? I want to be exactly sure before I go on the hunt again. Because verse 22, you know, this David guy, he's very cunning. It's kind of, kind, of, kind of funny here. I've heard David is cunning. This is an understatement. Remember, Saul, you keep throwing your spear at him. You can't hit him. You pin him to a wall, but you can't capture him. Saul thinks he's cunning. This is what he's heard. He doesn't quite understand that it's God who has his hand on his anointed. It's God who's been delivering him. Now Saul has trouble locating him. David here reminds me of a cartoon character I liked as a child called Casper the Friendly Ghost. Maybe some of you remember this friendly ghost. He didn't scare people. He was a ghost who liked to make friends with people. But one of the things he could do, like, like most ghosts, is he could become invisible and become visible again. And the thing about Casper is Casper liked to, liked to pop up here and then pop up there and then pop up there and surprise you. Well, it's like David here. David is incredibly elusive. He's here one minute and he's gone the next. You could throw spears at him. You could, you could try to pin him. You could try to kill him one day. And the next day, David would just pop up in the desert. Saul says, you know what? I'm tired of David just popping up. I want you to tell me exactly the most accurate GPS information. Send me the location pin on WhatsApp, and I want it to be within six meters accuracy. I want to know exactly where that guy is, then I'll go. Well, Saul and his men, they get the report. It's accurate, all right. They're off. 
Saul ends up on one side of the mountain. David ends up on the other side of the mountain. Saul's closing in. Saul's about to capture him. Saul's about to get him. David's pinned there. There's nowhere to run in verse 26. Saul runs around one way. The, his men run the other way. David can't run forward. He can't go back. He can't go to the sides. There's a mountain blocking him in. He's pinned. David is stuck. It's all over. And if we didn't know better at this point in reading the text, or if this was a movie and we were watching the movie, it's at this point that we would want to turn away and, and deflect our gaze somewhere else because we think this is finally it. There's no way out. Saul will capture David. There's no hope. Well, friend, have you ever been in a position like that where you just, you're just ready to surrender and give up because you can't see the way out? Maybe it's suffocating death or an angry spouse wayward kids, exhaustion, you're sleepy, you're facing a cancer scare, chronic health problems, a bully at school, a loss of reputation, that promotion that you were banking on, the manager gave it to someone else. You're lonely, you're overwhelmed. Have you ever been in trouble like this? Maybe you've seen God make all these little deliverances in your life, but here you're facing something and you think, no, 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 there is no way out. Everywhere you look, you see the enemy. Well, Saul pursues David. He's got him. Finally, he's got David. And then something happens. As Saul's about to make the capture, verse 27, a messenger came to Saul. Hurry, hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. Saved in the nick of time. Now, how did David really escape the clutches of Saul time and time again? Well, it's because God was there. It's as if David had an invisible force field set up all around him. I say invisible because David could see through it. David could see his enemies. David could see Goliath's face there on the battlefield. David could see Saul's spear. He sees these men. A friend, God doesn't blind us from trouble. We see it. That's a fact. Every time it looks like David is doomed, he sees. And every time it looks like David is doomed, God shields him and protects him. And here we see that God can even use really crazy outside circumstances to protect his people. I mean, who saved David? The Philistines. Well, it wasn't really the Philistines, was it? It was God. It was God who was orchestrating these events, but God used even the Philistines. How ironic. God used Israel's enemy to save David. Israel's enemy had become Israel's savior. This is God's providence. God works all things together for the good, for his people. Now, this passage is all about God's faithfulness. God gives David bread when he's hungry. God gives David a sword when he needs to fight. God redeems his mistakes. God connects him with a Moabitess to take care of his parents. God sends him prophets. God sends him priests. When David prays, God answers his prayers. God is guiding David every step of the way. Now, through that invisible force field, it may not look good to David. It may look like trouble was coming to David. It may look like 
it was the end, but all along God was protecting David. David was safe in the chase, and God will always, God will always protect his people, and we will not live one second less than God has predestined us to. We will not live one second less than what God has ordained. He will keep his people to the end. The Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. He is our rock of escape. Oh, Redeemer Church, it's this very truth that I want us to contemplate and to meditate upon as we take the Lord's Supper now. In just a minute, we'll be passing out our communion elements. And I want you to remember, fellow Christian, that Jesus is our rock of escape. When we look to Jesus for salvation, we're made to be guests at his table of fellowship. Another thing communion reminds us of is we're not alone. Jesus is with us. But it also reminds us that here on earth, we're not alone. We have brothers and sisters in Christ. God doesn't simply save us individually. We're saved into a family. This is why at Redeemer, we choose to eat and drink together at the same time as a symbol of our unity as part of the body of Christ. When you become a Christian, you have brothers and sisters who are now supernaturally closer to you than any biological, unbelieving family members. You might be sitting next to someone this morning from a different continent, but we know that Christ breaks down all barriers and brings us together. And so, friends, today, February 21st, 2020, is a taste of future glory. What we're about to embark on, it's a starter. It's an appetizer for the main course. This Friday taste points to a forever feast. Well, David's provision of the sacred bread for his physical hunger is a small picture. It's but a type but a shadow of the fact that Jesus is the true bread of life who provides for us our greatest need. If you're a follower of Christ, committed to Christ and to his church, we invite you to partake in the Lord's Supper this morning. But if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Christ, hear me say that we are so thrilled that you're here. Maybe you follow another religion. Maybe you're seeking. Maybe you're just wanting to learn more about what the Bible teaches. Well, we're thrilled you're here. We pray that you would keep joining us any week. We encourage you, let the bread, let the cup pass you by. If you want to talk about any of these things, if you want to talk about the Bible, if you want to talk about what we believe as Christians, you can talk to me afterwards. You can talk to any of our staff or connections team who are wearing those name tags and black lanyards around their necks. If you would like someone just to pray for you, any needs that you have, please find any one of us. Well, let's take a moment now in silence to reflect on our lives and to see if we might take part in communion in a manner worthy of the gospel. Let's do that now. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would the bread and the cup remind us that we are in Christ's family. Would this grand thought help us to love one another as Christ loved the church? Would we be kind and forgiving to one another because you've loved us first? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.